Welcome to the Karis Christian Center podcast. Uh, If you have your Bible, I'm beginning a brand new series. I'm going to begin in John chapter 1. I just got done teaching John, but I'm going to begin in John chapter 1. I'm going to be teaching on the grace life. It took me a number of years to get a revelation of grace. And when I got a revelation of grace, it's really changed how I live my life. It's changed how I minister to people. It's changed how I deal with my family. It's changed how I deal with, you know, people who work for me and how I deal with people in the world. It's changed nearly everything about me. But it wasn't until uh, 1994, I was 30 years old, that I got a revelation of grace. I was saved when I was eight years old in 1972. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Of course, you know the Bible says that you're saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. So I was saved. I had received from the grace of God. But even though I had received it, I really had no revelation of it. Then when I was 14 in 1978, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was called to preach. I began to get a revelation of who I was in Christ. And that really changed my life. I first began to understand that I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And I began to see how God saw me. And I believe if you get a picture of how God sees you, it's going to change your life for good. Barbara and I then went to Bible school, and and, uh, I began pastoring in 1988. I was 23 years old. About a month after we started pastoring, I turned 24. And I pastored for six years until I was 30 years old before I got a revelation of grace. And so I had been pastoring. Now, every year that I pastored, the church grew. And I asked Barbara, how could the church grow when I had no revelation of grace that I, you know, have now and I teach now? She said, it's because you taught the word of God and you taught faith and God honors, honored his word and people responded to the word of God. But then in 1994, I got a revelation of grace and it revolutionized my life. It changed, again, how I dealt with Barbara, how I deal with my children, how I deal with my ministry, how I deal with people in general. It changed my whole life. It's transformed my life and my ministry, praise God. In fact, Barbara says, if you didn't get a revelation of grace, I don't believe our boys would be serving Jesus like they're serving Jesus today. You know, I was kind of, to be honest with you, even though I was very saved, amen, very sanctified, amen, very filled with the Holy Ghost, I was kind of a tyrant. And uh, you can be saved and still be a tyrant, amen? But when you get a revelation of grace and you really begin to let that minister to you and change your life, I don't think you can stay in the tyrant realm. And you know, there are a lot of people that are saved that know Jesus, but they kind of think that God has a mean streak in him. And, you know, they pretty much preach that God is good, but then they, they, they think God has this just, he kind of acts up once in a while and acts out of character, and he's got this mean streak in him. And I'm telling you, they have no revelation of grace. Even some, some of them the last few years, because grace has become a very popular message around the world, have claimed that they have a revelation of grace. But when you begin to watch them, and, and observe a lot of things that they're saying and say, you know what? They maybe have a head knowledge, but they have no heart revelation of the message of the grace of God. But the grace of God has really changed my life. And 
That's what I really want to talk about in this series is how grace changes your life. Now, when we talk about grace, you know, if you, if you go to the Old Testament, see, grace just didn't begin with our salvation or Jesus. Grace begins really in the Old Testament. In Galatians chapter 3, in the, the subject is grace that Paul's talking about, uh, Paul says that God preached the gospel before to Abraham the, the grace of God, the gospel and grace are consistent. When you talk about the gospel and grace, really understand what they're saying. Saying that is consistent. He preached the gospel in Abraham when he said, in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And that's in Genesis chapter 12. If you go back to Genesis chapter three, we begin to see Jesus, right? The seed of the woman who is the grace of God. But if you go back to Genesis chapter one, Jesus is right there with the father with the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, verse 26, he says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. So I believe that you can see the grace of God clear throughout the Old Testament. But when we look at Jesus, Jesus gives us a picture of grace. Praise God. I believe like no other. And so I'm gonna begin again in John chapter one. We're gonna read in verse 14, on down through verse 18, he says this. He says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried, saying, this was he of whom I spoke. He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So when you look at this, John is talking about Jesus. He's talking about his relationship with Jesus, the living word. And he says, really, the first thing he, he declares is that Jesus is the embodiment of grace. If you want to see grace, you really don't have to look any farther than looking at Jesus. Praise God. And Jesus will, when you begin to understand him, Jesus reveals grace. In fact, for these people who think that God still has a mean streak in him, when you look at the life of Jesus... You know, Jesus as a whole was very kind and very compassionate with sinners. He was very compassionate with people, you know, who were less than in a religious sense. The only people that Jesus ever really scolded and got after were self-righteous people, were legalistic people. He told some self-righteous people, he said, you know, you guys are like the whitewashed tombs. You're pretty on the outside, but you are full of dead men's bones. <laughs> he said, you're like snakes and vipers. He said, you do all these things. You, you, you fast and you tithe and you, and, and, and you go up and sound a trumpet before you pray. Those kind of people, religious people, people who were trusting their own self instead of trusting God, for their salvation, Jesus, Jesus was a little bit direct with. In fact, he was very direct with them. But when Jesus dealt with sinners, 
Jesus was very gracious. He was very, very compassionate. In fact, the Bible says that he was moved by compassion. Love motivated him. And we need to let the love of God really motivate us. And when you look at John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, of, he, he says in John 1, verse 14, he says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth. And I, I love looking at Jesus and see how he deals with people, how he relates to people. In John chapter 4, you know, in the message with the woman at the well, uh, he's talking to her about eternal life. And, and she says, Lord, I want this eternal life. I want this water that you have to give. And Jesus said, well, go home and tell your husband. And she said, well, in verse 17 and 18, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, well, that's right. He said, you've had five before now. This, this marriage thing really hadn't worked out very well for her. And the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. And Jesus takes this woman and changes her in, in just moments of time from an adulteress to an evangelist. And she goes home and she doesn't only tell her husband about Jesus, the Messiah. She tells the whole city. And she brings the whole city to Jesus. In John chapter 8, there's an instance, right? And these religious rulers, because they were trying to catch Jesus in a trap, they brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. They said, Jesus, we caught her in adultery in the very act. Barbara says, well, I wonder what happened to the man. I don't think they really cared. I don't think they cared about the woman. I don't think they really cared about the adultery. But they were trying to get Jesus in a trap. And the law, Moses says to stone her. Moses says to kill her. What do you say? And Jesus says, I say, whoever of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they all leave from the oldest to the youngest being Aware, right? Because the, by the knowledge, the, the Bible says in, I think it's Romans 3, verse 20, that by the law is the knowledge of sin. So they know the law. So they are very aware of the sin, their sin. So they go away from the oldest to the youngest, and Jesus is left there alone with the woman. He says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she says, no man, Lord. Praise God. Jesus said, now Jesus is the only one who really has the right to condemn this woman because he's the only one who's never sinned. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd all be in the same boat as far as sin is concerned. So, so Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. So Jesus releases her from judgment, releases her from condemnation, releases her from death and frees her to follow him. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but what? Have the very light of life. I love this instance in Luke chapter 7. If you want to turn there with me, Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house to have a meal. 
says in verse 36. And he sat down there in verse 37. It says, and behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner. She was a notable sinner. When she knew that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she probably knew they would condemn her. Brought an alabaster box of ointment. But she was so interested in getting to know Jesus, she didn't care what the outward results of that meeting was going to be. She brought this alabaster box of ointment and stood behind his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with an ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw it, he said within himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what kind of woman this is who touches him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to tell you. He said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 pence and the other owed 50. We'll say one owed $500,000 and the other 50,000. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he who he forgave most. And Jesus said, that's right. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears, wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves a little. He said, your sins, he said unto her, your sins are forgiven. And they that sat at the meal with him began to say within themselves, who is this who forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Grace God, what is faith? Faith is a positive response to the grace of God. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. So when this woman comes to Jesus, when she responds to Jesus, Jesus, as the grace of God, gives her full forgiveness. Praise God. He, he sets her free from that. Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth. The second thing when we look into John's gospel, in verse 15, John chapter 1, John says this, John bore witness of him and cried, saying, this of, is he of whom I spoke. He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, John was born a few months before Jesus. But when Jesus is in this situation, Jesus, uh, John says, Jesus was preferred before me, for he was before me. What he's saying is Jesus is the eternal God. He says in verse 18, No man has seen God at any time but the only begotten Son who is from the bosom of the Father, who really shows us the heart of the Father. He has revealed him. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. What Jesus was saying is, I am the eternal God. 
No man has seen God at any time. No man has seen God. But Jesus came to show us who the Father is. He came to show us the Father's life and the Father's heart. Now, one thing that Jesus showed us about the Father is Jesus showed us he demonstrated the true nature of God. Of course, you know, if you've Listen to me very much that the Old Testament is a progressive revelation of who God is. And we've talked about the seven redemptive names of God. But we, we look into the Old Testament and we see that Jesus, that, that God is, and Jesus reflected this, God is our provider. He is our healer. He is our deliverer. He's the one who frees us. He's our peace and he's our righteousness. That's who God is. And Jesus came to show God to us. But not only that, I, I believe really the highest thing that Jesus reveals to us about the Father is he reveals to us the, 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 the nature of God and the nature of God is that he is our Father. And we can see this in a number of places. I like what... Paul says in his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven, part of the families in heaven, and earth is named. God is our Father and we're in his family. Now when you begin to understand that God relates to us as a Father and we're his family, it changes your mentality. In fact, years ago, I had a guy in my church, and he was real stubborn and difficult. He was very, very legalistic. And one day, he asked me to pray for him to be healed. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll pray for you to be healed if you will agree with me that when I pray. See, the Bible says that when we pray, we believe that we receive, that God's going to heal you. And he said, well, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know if I can agree that God is going to heal me when you pray. I said, well, why should I pray for you then if you're not going to believe it, if you're not going to agree? He said, well, God may be putting this sickness on me to teach. Now, listen, most of us in this room know better than that. But there's a lot of things that God has been accused of doing that God absolutely had no business in when you understand who God really is. God is not in the sickness and disease business. Amen. In fact, God is a good God. He's always been good. He, he appeared to Moses and said, I'm good. Praise God. And he's still good. Praise God. Jesus came to show us who God was. He, Jesus actually said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said, it's the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I'm come to give you life in its fullness. I, I've come to give you life extravagantly. When you study the Greek word for life, it's talking about Zoe, the character and nature of God. And when you believe on Jesus, God puts his nature in you. You have the life of God in you. You have the very nature and the very character of God himself on the inside of you, living in your spirit. And Jesus said, listen, it's the thief. I believe that's the devil. 
The devil wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But I've come to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. I, I've come to give you life in an extravagant form. Some people are really challenged with this aspect of abundant life, of extravagant life. You know, some people are challenged because Jesse Duplantis has a jet. Because he lives in a nice house. Now, you're going to have a really hard time with heaven. And in fact, if you knew all the meetings that Jesse goes to, you probably wouldn't have a problem with him having a jet. In fact, I remember I told Jesse, somebody was mad at Jesse talking about, and, and you ought to hear his deal. I mean, he got this extremely expensive jet. And they were asking like 10 or $12 million for it. These folks named the Bass Brothers owned it. People don't care if the, the Bass Brothers own three or four jets. People don't care if the Bass Brothers have three or four jets. But God forbid that a preacher would have a jet. But, you know, they, they asked Jesse, they said, well, he inquired about it. He said, well, Jesse, what would you like to pay for it? He said, well, I'd like to pay you $4.5 million for it. They said, is there anything you'd like? Now, they were asking between nine and 12 million. It was a lot of money. It's like a 50-some million dollar jet new. He said, yeah, I'd like to have this special engine surf. It cost $2 million. They said, Jesse, we'll sell it to you for $4.5 million, and we'll do the engine thing for free. So they sold him this jet that might have been worth $15 million for $4.5 million. Praise God. That's the grace of God because their mama loved Jesus. And she said, I want to help Jesse have a jet. <laughs> Hallelujah. So Lester Sumrall had a jet when I went to Bible school. And I remember Dr. Delron Shirley, he comes here to church, but he was the dean of students then. And I remember when he picked me up to the airport and was taking me to look at the Bible school. And, and I was asking, you know, because I understood flying, right? And I understood jets cost a lot of money to operate. And, and so I, I said, yeah, Dr. Sumrall has a jet. And he, he just told me, God is to be served, people are to be loved, and tools are to be used. That's a tool to reach the people with the gospel. And not very long after I, you know, arrived there, I had this dream of working for Dr. Sumrall. And, and one morning they said, well, we don't have any jobs except working, you know, in the, in the preschool, nursery, or, you know, child care. I said, well, that, that didn't, you know, that, they said, you can't do that at that point in time. So I said, okay. So I went and picked up six job applications and came back to the office and Dr. Shirley said, hey, has the office manager talked to you? I said, no. He said, well, he wants to talk to you. And I had just talked to him a couple of hours earlier before I picked up all these applications. And he called me in and he said, uh, he said, have you, ever, have you ever run tapes? I said, no. He said, have you ever run videos? I said, no. He said, have you ever run a computer? I said, no. When I went to high school, we only had two computers in the whole high school, one for the teachers and one for the kids. <laughs> I said, but I tell you what, I can do anything that Jesus wants me to do. And you know, somebody got mad that morning and quit, and God opened me up a job. Praise God. But Ken, he was the office manager, Ken Holdery. He was a great man of God. Ken told me, he said, listen, I want you to come to work next Monday. And we were going to move in our house on Friday or Saturday, whenever the owner had it ready for us to, to move into. So, so he said, I'd like you to come and volunteer on Saturday. I said, if I get a move in my house on Friday, I'll be here on Saturday. So 
it worked out. We moved in our house on Friday, and so I went to volunteer on Saturday. And I happened to be painting Dr. Sumrall's main office. I wouldn't have even been in that area. And I saw that he had plaques from Delta Airlines and United Airlines, multi-million mile flyer. I, I thought, man. And then as I worked for him, I realized Dr. Sumrall preached 300 meetings a year, over 300, outside of his own church. He probably preached over 300 different cities a year. And I realized that, you know what? He flew United and he flew Delta till they couldn't get him there anymore. <laughs> and then he got a jet. He had about a 20-year-old Falcon jet. It was a fast one. Praise God. In fact, he came and dedicated our church in Kit Carson. I still remember one of the brothers from my church, Rachel's daddy, we were driving down to pick him up at Lamar, Colorado. We left an hour early because we we're going to stop by the hotel where we were putting him up in Lamar and get the room ready. And, and I remember telling Jim, I said, hey, Jim, did you realize they haven't even taken off in South Bend yet? And we were living in Kit Carson to go to Lamar. He said, really? I'm like, yeah. I said, that's just about an hour and a half flight. <laughs> and it was 1,100 miles by car, but boy, that jet got there quick. And so we asked him when we got there, yeah, we left about... So they left about 30 minutes after we left Kit Carson to fly to Lamar. But Dr. Sumrall would, would preach two or three services on Sunday morning. Sometimes he preached to his elders and then two Sunday morning services. And then sometimes he stayed and preached Sunday night. And then Monday morning he got up and did staff meeting at 10 o'clock. And then, you know, on, he, he went and got in the jet and flew and preached somewhere Monday night. Got up Tuesday morning, flew somewhere else, preached Tuesday night. Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, did that every day. Sometimes he even preached Saturday night and then flew home Saturday night. But he had a love for souls. He had a passion for souls. And he was anointed to win souls. I, I never saw anybody that could get people born again like Lester Sumrall. In fact, we had a little Christmas program. It was, it was just, you know, it wasn't much church. Two or 3,000 people attended every Sunday. And our Christmas program, about 500 people came out. But Dr. Sumrall would preach, and a dozen people would get born again. I mean, it was amazing. He just had a gift to get people saved. Praise God. He was preaching one time years ago in Calvary Temple. It was a big full gospel church in Denver. And while he's preaching, a man raised his hand and said, Mr. Sumrall? He said, yes. In the middle of his sermon, he interrupted him. He said, could I get saved? He said, yes, sir, come up here right now. And he led him to Jesus right there. Praise God. And the man went, sat down, and had a heart attack and died and went home to be with Jesus before the service was over. Praise God. He, he was that close to eternity. Praise God. I mean, he had an amazing anointing to get people saved. Glory to God. I, I, just, I just watched that anointing work in his life. But he had a passion for souls that drove him, that motivated him, that compelled him. Praise God. And you know what? We need to do what God's anointed us to do, what God's called us to do. We don't, we need, to, we don't need to worry about what all these other people think. We just need to keep doing what God wants us to do. Praise God. We need to operate in the gifting and the grace. That's part of this thing called grace that God has given us. Amen? And he had developed it in a very unique way. But Dr. Sumner had this amazing gift. But when we, when we think about this, um, that God is our Father and we're in his family and he wants to do good things for us. Amen? 
And, and really, I, I begin to think about the Father's heart. When you think about creation, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. And after he created everything in the heaven and earth, then he made man in his own image, and he placed them in a beautiful garden. Man was the, was the crowning gem of God's creation. And he provided for us so well there in the garden. Praise God. God is a father and he has a family. When you begin to understand that God's your father, did you know it changes how you pray? In fact, Jesus revealed that if we go to Luke chapter 11 and we look at this in verse 1 and verse 2, it says, it came to pass that as he was praying, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when you pray, say, our Father who is in heaven, we honor your name. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in heaven, so in earth. How many of you believe there's any sickness in heaven? How many of you believe there's any poverty in heaven? Oh, you don't want just a little, little shack in heaven? <laughs> no, there's no poverty in heaven. How many believe there's any sorrow in heaven? You know, the scripture says that uh, he's going to wipe all tears from people's eyes. So, so, you know what? We need to pray like your will be done as in heaven on earth. Praise God. And so Jesus was teaching them how to pray. But I want you to notice that Jesus prayed out of this relationship with his father. And it's very different than legalistic people pray. Right? And, and, and when he prayed, it motivated his disciples. They said, Lord, you show us how to pray like you pray. Well, when you understand God is your father and you have this fellowship with him, it changes how you pray. And prayer is not a struggle. It's not difficult. It's not hard. Prayer for the believer is as easy as breathing. I mean, it's part of your fellowship. It's part of your relationship. Jesus goes on down as he's sharing on prayer and says this in verse 5. Which of you have a friend? Go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves. What if your friend asked you for three loaves of bread? What would you do? You'd give it to him no matter when they came, right? You're going to take care of your friend. And you know, really, in the Old Testament, when you understand the law, it made you a servant. But when you understand the Gospels in Jesus, he called us friends. But when you understand if the epistles, when you understand grace, when you understand the new covenant, you're no longer servants, but your sons and daughters. And Jesus goes on, talks about this aspect of prayer. And he says this in verse 11 through 13. If a son asks bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? If your child asks you for something good, what are you going to do? If you have it in your power, right, you're going to help him. He says... If he asks for a fish, will he give him for a fish a serpent? If he asks for an egg or life, will he offer him a scorpion death? Are you going to give him death for life? No. No, the, the obvious answer, that's my son. I'm not going to give my son something that's going to kill him. 
Right? I'm not going to give my child. I care for my child. He says this in verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? God wants you to have good things and, and, and this thing called prayer. When you have a relationship with him, you're, he's your father and you're in his family. And it's not difficult. He goes on in John chapter 12 and verse 32. And Jesus says this, fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to give you the kingdom. We read this yesterday in our men's fellowship. We talked about Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Praise God. Just, just get involved with him and doing what he wants you to do. He'll take care of the rest. The Gentiles are seeking after all these worldly things, but you take care of God, your relationship with him, right? That takes care of the rest. So keep trusting him. So I, I believe that Jesus revealed the Father, but not only did he reveal the Father, if we look at verse 16, it says this, John chapter 1, verse 16, of his fullness have all we received grace for grace. There is more grace. Jesus gives us more grace. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, there is more grace. Everybody say, more grace. So not only do you have grace for salvation, but you have grace for life. You have grace for living. In fact, as we begin to look at it, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Those are the two main themes of the New Testament. The grace of God, which talks about what God did for us in the person of Jesus, and faith. Faith is our positive response toward the gospel. And, and then, grace is what God did for us, but faith is our positive response toward the gospel. Now, when we look at... Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. He says in verse 9, Not of works, not by works, lest any man should boast. We're not saved by our good deeds. We're not saved by our performance. He says then in verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, which God has before, before the foundation of the world, ordained that we should walk in in them. God wants us to walk in good things, and we walk in them through grace. Amen? Now, when he says grace for grace, so there is grace for salvation. But if we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and we start reading in verse 5, look at what he says in verse 5. He says, even when we were dead in sins, has he quickened us, has he made us live together with Christ? By grace are you saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have a glorified position through grace. And then he says this in verse 7. He did this so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So there's grace for salvation. Right? But there's also grace for eternity. The Bible says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says this uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll just go there and read this really quickly. Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus. The more that you get to know God and Jesus, grace and peace are being multiplied to you. Amen? Over half of the books of the New Testament start with grace and peace. Grace is a marvelous thing. Amen? We need to get a revelation of grace. Now, like I said, in my life, it took me some time, but it's totally changed my life. So there's grace for salvation. There's grace for eternity. We're to grow in grace. He says here, grace and peace be multiplied to you when you know God and Jesus. But the Bible also talks about there's grace for ministry. In Galatians chapter uh, 3, verse 2, Paul asked a question. He said, how did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by the, by the works of the law, by the works of the flesh, or by the hearing of faith? How did you get saved? Did you get saved because of what you did or because of what Jesus did? Because of what? Because of what Jesus did. But then he asks a question in verse 5. And he says, He therefore that ministers to you and works miracles among you, how does he do it? Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? By the hearing of faith. Great answer. But here's what happens, right? Here's what happens in most churches. In most churches, they say, if you're going to minister, right? If you're going to work miracles, you've got to fast. You've got to pray. You've got to read your Bibles. You've got to give. You've got to be kind to your neighbor. And they make it all about you. And guess what? When it becomes all about you, in fact, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, if you're justified by the law, if you're justified by your performance... You're falling from grace. What's that mean, falling from grace? You're missing out on the blessing that grace has to provide. So what he's really saying here at the beginning of Galatians chapter 3, and he goes through all these things that grace provides through faith, right? Grace and faith. But, but he's saying everything from the beginning of your salvation to the end of your ministry to the end of your life is about grace. And if you don't get it by grace, you're just not going to get it. Amen? So we need grace. We have grace to minister. Now, when he says, of his fullness, we've all received grace for grace. There's different kinds of grace. And I also look, look at it as grace gifts. In fact, some of the time the, word, the Bible used the word gifts, it's actually talking the Greek word, such as in Romans. We can turn to Romans really quickly. Romans chapter 12. I'll look at two verses. Then in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, while I'm turning there, Paul says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, some grace gift to the end that you might be established. If I'm going to get you established, it's going to be by the grace gift of God. But he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I say through the grace or the gift given to me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. Don't be arrogant, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. You know what that's talking about when you read it in context? I know you have the faith of Jesus. I can show you that in a lot of different verses, but that's not what that scripture is talking about. That scripture is talking about grace gifts. And when he said he's given to you the measure of faith, he's talking about grace gifts. Every one of you as born-again members of the body of Christ 
have been given grace gifts. And he says here in verse 6, he says, having then gifts, and this word gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, this word gifts is the Greek word charisma. It's grace gifts. You know, in fact, there are some people that are very gifted in the realm of grace. Amen? They're very gifted with gifts of the Holy Spirit. But you know what? You don't receive gifts of the Spirit because you're a spiritual giant. In fact, I've seen some people that are pretty flaky and kind of fleshy operate in some pretty amazing gifts. And people think that they're super spiritual giants because they operate in these gifts. No, you're not a super spiritual giant because you operate in gifts. They are gifts. G-I-F-T-S. If somebody gives you a gift, it's not because of what you did. It's not because of who you are. It's because they gave you a gift. And Jesus gives grace gifts. In fact, it says when he led captivity, he gave gifts to men. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, verse 8, right in there. We've received gifts. As member, if you're a member of the body, if you're born again, you've been given grace gifts. In fact, I actually think, and I may be wrong, this is just my opinion. I believe these Romans 12 motivational gifts, I believe God gave you those motivations when you're born. I, I believe God gives you grace to be a success in life even before you're saved. That's my opinion. I may be wrong. Okay, I'm just telling you that's what I think. Because I think God gave everybody ability to succeed in life. You know, I had the privilege this week of speaking in Shelbyville, Tennessee. It's the home of Jack Daniels whiskey. It's the biggest thing there. But I got to speak to the varsity football team and the varsity girls, boys football team and girls basketball team. And they brought about 60 young people in there for me to speak to. It was a wonderful opportunity. Their coach came. His wife is Heather's aunt and stayed with Aaron and Heather this summer. He heard me preach. He said, I, if you come to Tennessee, and we were preaching in a multiple church meeting. We saw a bunch of people healed and set free. But, but he said, if you come, I want you to speak to my football team. And so we had about 60 kids, boys and girls in there. The girls basketball varsity team, boys football team. And I got to talk to him a little bit. And I talked to him about, you can be success in life because God wants you to be a success. I believe God gave you the ability. I talked to them about purpose. I talked to them about surrounding themselves with the right people. I talked to them about keeping a good attitude. And I talked about, to them about relying on God and the Holy Spirit. But then the last thing, and, and listen, I got 20 minutes and they were fixed. Their attention was fixed on me. I only saw one kid not paying attention a little bit. It was a little bit distracted, but they were, they were really paying attention. Amen. And then I talked to them about the most important decision that they would make in life. And that's the decision to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Praise God. When I got done, the principal of the high school talked to me. He said, listen, we talked to them about those first three things. We talked to them about purpose. We talked to them, you know, about relationships. We talked to them about keeping a good attitude. But we can't tell them to trust God, rely on the Holy Spirit, and believe on Jesus. But he said, you did a good job. Amen? After I got done, I was just with the coach and his wife and his son, who's the quarterback of the team. And a young man ran back in. They told me he was a sophomore. He said, thank you so much. <laughs> that was awesome. Praise God. 
You know what? We get opportunities through the grace gift God's given us to minister in different areas. We need to tell people about Jesus. And you know the Bible actually says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. It says, as every man has received the gift, so let him minister as good stewards of the manifold, of the many-sided grace of God. Grace is a many-sided thing. And you've all received the gift of salvation, so we need, all need to be sharing Jesus. Finally, he says this, and I'm going to finish up really quickly. I went over time without knowing it. In verse 17, he says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. You know, truth minus grace equals law. And law, at the end of the day, produces death. If you read Romans chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The law is the strength of sin. So truth minus grace equals law that produces death. Truth plus grace equals Jesus, who is life. So the way that you approach truth, if you approach truth with legalism, it will produce death. But if you approach truth with grace, it will produce life. So the, you, the way that you approach truth, whether you approach it through a legalistic mentality or through grace, determines whether that truth is producing death or life. And you know what? Most of us are legalistic about something. In fact, I even know a few people that are legalistic about grace. Amen? So what I'm telling you is keep sharing the grace of God. Amen? And keep letting Jesus, who is the embodiment of grace, change your life. Amen? And as you do that, praise God, I believe you can reign in life through the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Thank you for listening to the Karis Christian Center podcast. If you would like to receive prayer, product, or more information about the ministry, go to www.karischristiancenter.com or call us at 719-418-4000.